0: Thanks for spending time with Fusion Community Church through our podcast. These can be accessed anytime through iTunes or on our website, fusioncommunity.church. We hope you enjoy today's message from Pastor Andrew Fetter. Well, that word uncertainty, uh, we, we've gotten a, a massive education in that over the last year and a half of our lives, haven't we? And when we really think about it, there, there, there is so little to really be certain of, Right. Are you certain that today you make it home alive? Are you certain that at the end of the t- of the of today you're not in a hospital? Um are you certain that at the end of today every relationship you have right now in this moment is 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 still moving forward and there's not a massive massive wall in the middle of a relationship you have with someone that you care deeply about? Over the last 3 weeks we've been talking about this idea of uncertainty. And and God's word is filled with with people that walk through uncertain times, right? From Genesis to Revelation, just filled. We even looked at that last week. These themes that continue to pop up over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, where it's the lives and the stories of people that have dealt with uncertainty and how they've made mistakes and failed, in their faith and in their walk with God, and other times where they've thrived even in the midst of that uncertainty. And the same is is true today. Over the last three weeks, we've looked at the things we need, the steps we have to take in uncertain times. We started looking at at the word peace. In, In uncertain times, we are desperate for peace. We want peace with our circumstances, even though they're out of our control. We want peace with God. We want peace with ourselves, so we can look at ourselves in the mirror. We want peace with others. And in Jesus, we find the relationship with him, not a religious admission that he's God, but in a relationship restored with Jesus, we find that's the only source of peace that's actually sustainable, that's absolutely separate from all of our circumstances. In the second week, we looked at uncertain times that we need to fight the right fight, that the greatest battle each of us wage every single day is the battle between our own ears the battle of our thoughts, that it's so easy when things are uncertain to get depressed, to get hopeless, to get irritated, to get frustrated, to get, to get nasty with the people that are closest to us. We even talked about how it's, it's easy to, 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 to not fight for the word of God, to have authority, but to just kind of coast and glide. Then last week, we looked at not sitting on the fence, that, that in uncertain times, we don't sit on the fence. The temptation is to kind of glide when things get hard, to slow down, to lose focus, And start to give up, to become lukewarm. And we even looked at the historical context of that idea of being hot or cold and not being lukewarm. That we have to choose every day who will we serve, like Joshua. We have to choose who we will follow. We will have to choose who we obey, like John says in Revelation. Now, you can always catch up on past messages in the app if you missed one of these. Next week, we're going to look at the role courage plays in uncertain times. It's often at times hard to dig deep and find courage to continue to move forward when we don't know how things will end up. But today, we're going to look at a practical challenge, more of a counterintuitive thing. There's, there's a tendency when things are uncertain for us to go like this with our lives, with the decisions of our lives, to, to kind of want to, to hoard. And there's a, there's a principle found in God's word that says, no, if anything, when things are most uncertain is when you need to push things out. Did you know that the things we do in life reveal what we really believe? I mean, at the beginning of COVID, there were some people that uh, literally rented an excavator across our country, and they went into their backyard or into the woods, and they started to dig an underground fallout shelter. Why would they do that? Well, maybe that was you. Maybe you have one. You're like, hey, don't tell anybody, okay? I've only invited a few people to join me. and I know what it can withstand, and I'm not talking about it. And I did not post pictures of it on Facebook. Other people did. So uh, I don't want anybody to know it's there. But some people did. They started to build on it. Why? Because they believed that that very likely could be something that they need. And so because they believed it, they acted on it. Others, early on in COVID, maybe this was you, started to stockpile pallets of toilet paper, right? There was evidence of that. Why? They believed the day could come where they would have to resort to tree bark or something, and they didn't want to go there. Um, the question is if things would have gotten that bad, we would have really seen the heart of generosity in some people, wouldn't we have, uh, would they hoard the toilet paper or would they share? Because toilet paper is a tricky thing. You only get one use, right? Um, one time at least, aren't you thankful things didn't get that bad that we had to start contemplating? How many uses can we get out of our toilet paper, right? That's not my notes. I apologize. Um, Some people started to stockpile buckets of dried food. There are even businesses popping up. Hey, this dried food will last 20 years. Uh, Why would you do that? Because you believe you would need it. Someday when my daughters start dating, the guy who asks them out will realize he made a really foolish life choice as I invite him inside and I introduce him to my ever-expanding firearms collection. Uh, Why would I do that? Because I believe I need to terrify that young man into treating my daughter preciously and honorably, right? I want him to know what the wrath of God could be like. So, um, well, what we do reveals what we really believe. And it's often in uncertain times where the pressure builds and the stress gets heavier and anxiety begins to peak where what we believe reveals itself in our actions. How many of us over this last year, those are some humorous things, but how many of us over this last year discovered we really believe in community? We really believe in relationships, right? We believe in the power of being together with those we care most about. Sometimes we don't know what we have until it's gone. It's kind of a neat little catchphrase, but we experienced it this year in the middle of quarantines and shutdowns. Isolation and loneliness was running rampant. I mean, you saw it all over social media, people just wanting to be with family that lives in other parts of the country and just counting the days they hadn't seen each other or been in each other's presence. Now, this uncertainty that we've been talking about, it's something we try to avoid. We try to build our lives in such a way to avoid the very things Jesus promised us in John 16 would come. He says, in this life, you will have trials and struggles. We try to build our lives in such a way that we can kind of minimize the tough stuff as best we can. We try to find a way to navigate around it hoping, believing that we can somehow yield control over all the parts of our lives happening at one time. And maybe, just maybe, by our intellect, by our willpower, by our authority, we can avoid the trials and struggles or diminish them as much as possible. And yet, at the same time, the uncertainty of life causes us to face the truth that we are not in control. Right? I mean, it's this paradox, this tension we have to live in. We, we try to, to, to build our lives in such a way we can avoid the trials and sorrows, and yet we face this uncertainty, and, and we understand we're not in control, never be in control. And, and that, that recognition or admission that we'll never be in control is one of the greatest tools God can use to kind of break loose the parts of us that need to be broken loose. God wants to break us down on the inside. He wants to break down the things that we build our faith on that are shifting sand so he can rebuild it in, on our relationship with him. The truth is, hopefully this last year, the Holy Spirit has been showing you where you've been in bondage to busyness or idolatry or distractions that you don't even realize are destroying your life. And he wants to open our eyes to see it. It's often only when we realize we're totally out of control that we are finally ready to step back and consider a biblical principle we, we see all throughout Scripture. Here's the, the focus today. In uncertain times, we have to examine what we're sowing. Examine what we're sowing. There's a principle or promise found in Scripture that is 100% true in this world. And this is true whether you have faith in Jesus or whether you would say, I don't really know what I believe. This principle will always be true about this world that God created. And it's the principle of sowing and reaping. Paul says it succinctly in 2 Corinthians 9 to the church there. God wants to communicate this idea that whoever sows sparingly a little bit will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now you know this principle is true because you've experienced it in your life, right? Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You try to teach this to your kids and your grandkids. If you sow seeds of judgment, then other people are going to show judgment back to you. If you're critical of others, you're going to receive criticism. If you talk about people when they're not around and gossip to other people, then when you're not around, those very people are going to gossip and talk about you. If you act out impulsively, aggressively towards other people, they're going to respond in kind. Whatever you sow, you reap. Whatever you give, you're going to get back. When we're we're uncertain times, we have this, this kind of tendency to kind of draw everything in close so we can try to control it. And yet there's a principle in Scripture that says, no, when things are uncertain, you have to to examine what it is you need to sow in those seasons. Now, this works in the negative, but this also works in the positive. If you give out encouragement and affirmation to others, if you're sowing kindness, people are gonna be affirming and encouraging and kind to you. If you sow love and patience and gentleness, if you're, if you're, if you're loving with people, if you're a peacemaker, most of the time, in most situations, people are gonna respond or react to you in a way that they've experienced you interact with them. They're gonna follow your lead. And God himself shows us this time and time again, that there's this universal principle in the world he created. What you sow, you reap. What you give out in life, what you're generous with, God's going to bless you with. He's wired the universe this way. But the other truth about this principle goes deeper than that, in that what we choose to sow with in whatever measure, he actually gives us more than we gave away. Right? He's even built our, our agricultural system this way. You take one small seed for corn, And you put it in the ground, you don't just get one kernel back. You get a whole stalk with hundreds of kernels. You have one tomato seed. You don't put it in the ground and then harvest a tomato. You have a tomato plant with a bushel of tomatoes. This is the the world in which God created that when we sow seeds, we reap a harvest so much bigger than what we planted. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples about the new way of life. That he's modeling for them. And listen to this principle in Jesus' words, sowing and reaping. He's not going to use those words specifically, but you're going to see the principle and the promise of God play out. And he's speaking to them about the life he's living as a model and the life he's calling us to live. He's given us his spirit so we have the power to live. And I want you to ask the question as you hear this. Is this an easy life to live or is this really, really hard? Luke chapter 6 and verse 27, Jesus says this. To you who are willing to listen, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks. And when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. Jumping down to verse 35, he says again, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then, now this is all about sowing, right? Sow these seeds to people that don't deserve it. And we know intuitively, if we're followers of Jesus, that this is who God is, right? He sows seeds of grace and forgiveness and mercy to us who don't deserve it. Now he's calling us to live that kind of life. Sow forgiveness, sow kindness, sow love, sow forgiveness into the lives of people that don't get it. Sow forgiveness for debt. When they owe you something, let it go. <clears throat> He says, Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then, here's the reaping your reward from heaven will be very great. And you will truly be acting, behaving, living life as children of the Most High. That our lives are demonstrations of our Father. Who is our Father? For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate. Just as your father is compassionate. Now in verse 37, he's going to literally give us, so reap, So reap. Listen to this. Do not judge others and you'll not be judged. Don't sow judgment, you'll reap judgment. Do not condemn others or it will all come back against you. Don't sow condemnation or you'll reap condemnation. Forgive others. Sow forgiveness and you'll be forgiven. You'll reap forgiveness. Give, sow, sow generosity and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, Press down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. Jesus, the Son of God, says the condition of your heart when you give, when you serve, when you share, when you love, whatever you give out you're going to get back in a greater degree from God the Father himself. Why? Because God wants us to learn the beauty and the joy of being like him, to give ourselves away, to be generous, not only in the seasons where we have plenty, but especially in the uncertain times where we have a tendency to want to bring everything in close to try to control. He wants us to experience the blessing of a life of generosity. Jesus says this in Luke as kind of a direction for those who are following. What it is do we value as followers of Jesus? What it is we believe as followers of Jesus? How do we live life as children of the Most High God? And then let me show you a few places in the New Testament where the church's belief in the word of Jesus is carried out in that first generation. Philippians 4, Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the churches in Philippi, those little small micro church, house churches around the city of Philippi. And he says this, he talks about a moment in their past, in their recent memory, he draws attention to it. Here's what Paul says, he says, my friends at Philippi, first he says to this group of churches, friends, he's identifying a relational bond, which means there's something that he's done for them and something they've reciprocated and done for him. He sowed seeds of kindness and gentleness and friendship and he's, he's reaped it. So there's a relationship. My friends at Philippi, you remember what it was like when I started preaching the good news in Macedonia? After I left there, you were the only church that became my partner by giving blessings and by receiving them in return. Paul's saying, after I left there, you were the only church that came alongside by your generosity and helped the gospel advance forward. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul's writing to a young leader in the church and And he's given him direction. How do you lead people forward? How do you rise above insecurity and you step out and you you instill within them the values of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And in chapter 6, verse 8, he he writes this. He says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Paul's telling Timothy, and, and get this, he's writing this at a time where the church is under incredible scrutiny and persecution. Like if there was ever an uncertain time in the history of the church, it's in those first 30 years when the church is just beginning, where it's so fragile, where, where, where those that were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they thought they could silence them. They, caught, they thought they could stop this false doctrine from moving forward. And, and there were days where it would have seemed like very iffy, like what's going to happen? They're, they're arresting people. They're, they're finding people. They're killing people to try to stop the spread of the, the news of Jesus. These are incredibly uncertain, incredibly risky times. And Paul's saying at this time, hey, tell them to be rich in good deeds. Not just to those they like, but to their enemies. Tell them they've got to be generous. They've got to be willing to share. Show them how to give themselves away in uncertain times. Teach them to examine what it is they're sowing. Am I doing good? Am I rich in good deeds? Am I generous and willing to share? Because my father is good. My father has done the greatest deed in laying down his life for me. My father is so generous with mercy and grace to me. My father is willing to share the kingdom with me. I'm an heir of the kingdom of God. Am I following the example of my father? Tim, this is how you lead the church forward. Now this next one may rock your world a little bit. This may be a verse in the Bible you want to tear out and kind of forget about. But it tells the account of a church who was so passionate about the mission of God advancing, that they received an offering and, and, and they wanted to accomplish what God was doing through Paul's ministry, and yet they felt like at the end of the first offering, no, we gotta, we gotta have another one. That's not enough resources. We feel God's calling us to give more. And this was the church saying this. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul draws attention to it. He says, they, the church, even asked and begged us to let them have the joy of giving their money for God's people. They said, no, nope, that's not enough. We need to have a second offering. Let's pass, pass the baskets Once again, keep in mind that every audience that every word of the New Testament is written to who read it first, they were living in the definition of uncertain times, more so than we could possibly begin to imagine. And continually, this core value of generosity was linked with what it meant to follow Jesus, the one who sowed faithfulness to God. That's who Jesus was. He sowed sacrifice, and then he called us to follow him. He sowed consistency, he was the same every day. He was, he was unwavering. He sowed obedience to God. He sowed generosity to lay down his life for me and for you. And what do we reap? We reap the victory, right? Oh, your blood shed for me. Oh, your blood, your love in crimson streams. He's the one that, that we get to reap the victory and the freedom because of what Jesus has sowed on our behalf. And we're called to follow his lead. In that. I want to touch on a few common sense, unmistakable fruits of why we need to examine what we're sowing and, and why we need to choose, in the midst of that examination, say, I'm going to choose to sow generosity because my God, my Savior, is generous. The first thing, generosity reveals priorities. It reveals our priorities. Jesus makes no mistake in, in Matthew 6:21. he says this, Your heart will be where your treasure is. Now, it's interesting the way he says it, right? Jesus is brilliant. In the way he says it, you will find your heart where you choose to put your treasure, What means? which means we like to think we can put our heart places, and Jesus is saying, no, you can't. You can't. Your heart follows where your treasure goes. Where you invest your life, you will care about, and where you don't invest your life, you won't care about, right? For instance, you may love baseball, and you watch all these games. But if you don't watch hockey, you probably don't care about hockey, right? Like where you put your time and energy and attention and resources. You buy the jersey. You buy the shirt. You buy the hat. You have a whole closet full of them, right? If if your kids are playing softball or baseball right now, you go to their games. If your kids aren't playing, you probably don't even care what's going on at that field. You just drive right on by with your camper or your boat or your motorcycle because that's where your treasure is, right? This is a truth about life. Whatever re- receives, the majority slice of my attention reveals precisely what I value more than anything else. So if you've invested a lot of sweat equity and money in your home, then you might have a shoes-off mandate to your kids and their friends when they come in. Because it's like, we've spent a lot of time refinishing these floors, and we've spent a lot of money on this carpet, this flooring, shoes-off at the door. I remember, uh, my mom and dad are actually with us today, but I remember the house we grew up in, There was this. it was built in the 1860s, big old farmhouse uh, in, in flat rural Ohio, And uh, there was this room in the front of the house, had this red carpet, and it had a white sofa. Four kids living in the country with pigs in the barn, and there's a white sofa. I'm not questioning my mother's choices. My mother's in the room, so I wouldn't do that. (laughs) But there were times where we would walk in, like, we just knew you don't wear shoes in there. You you don't don't wear socks. You don't even really go, you don't want to go in there. Like, you're just afraid when you're in there. You definitely don't eat or drink in there. There's a white sofa. You sit on the floor. You don't sit on the sofa. I'm just kidding. She never had that rule. That was never a rule. But there were times where there was an uneasiness when my friends would be there. It'd be like, hey, yeah, just stay out of there. For one, the sofa's really pretty, but it's not the most comfortable. We've got more comfortable stuff to sit on. And there's no video game system in there, so we don't even need to go in there. If you've invested a lot in your kids and the activities or, act- or the stuff they enjoy, their passions, their hobbies, the sports, the arts, whatever it is, then you have a heart and passion for those things as well, Right? What they're passionate about, you invest in, and now you're passionate about. Your passion is going to increase as well. What you invest your treasure in, your time, your, tr- your, your, your finances, your, your talents, Jesus is saying it's impossible to separate that from leading your heart. So it matters. It matters in a big way. Where we invest our treasure, our heart will follow. It's one of the dangers of debt, right? We get ourselves spread too thin, and then what are we most passionate about? All the stuff in our lives. If you believe strongly that that in reaching people who are far from God and them coming to faith and experiencing salvation in this life, but also for eternity, if you're passionate about being a disciple and and making disciples of others, growing in your faith by taking steps of obedience and faith and, and excited about seeing others take steps of faith, then you'll invest your time and your treasure and your talents and your abilities and your money into ministries or into your church where those things are happening one person at a time. And and when you hear of stories of obedience and faith and victory and chains breaking, there'll be a joy that's inside of you because your heart is responding to where you're investing your life. The principle is whatever receives the lion's share of our time, energy, and money, it begins to dominate our attention. It's what we get most excited about, most passionate about, and it's what we celebrate the most. And at times, it's often what's in most direct competition with God. The commitment to practice the discipline of sowing and reaping generosity, giving ourselves away, it helps us keep our priorities on the right thing. Generosity, second, demonstrates my faith. Right? I mean, we just read through this. In the, in the text, we're told that, that we can demonstrate who our Father is by our choice to be generous. Well, let's be honest. Sometimes we're generous because we feel obligated, right? Nobody else sees it. I guess I should do something. Oftentimes we're generous because we feel like we should or we're supposed to. Sometimes we, we're generous because other people are watching us and we want them to think well of us, right? And so you're standing there at the restaurant and you swipe your card and it's this big like 14-inch screen and it says tip. 8%, 10%, 12%, 25% and there's a crowd of people around you you're like, okay, 25% because I want people to think well of me. Is that generosity? Is that the heart of generosity? No, it's, it's driven by fear of others and what they're going to think. We aren't being generous at all if we're driven by obligation or guilt or, or we think we're supposed to or we want people to think well of us. That's not generosity, that's bondage. That's chains wrapped around us holding us prisoner. Something maybe you've never thought about. Maybe this is you. There are are people who would say they're followers of Jesus and they find it easy to have a big faith and trust their eternity in the hands of God. This supernatural thing that, that Jesus, the same, who raised his life back, to the, back from the grave, which is an impossible thing in our mind, he raised his life back from death. I believe that he can raise my life back to death. And we can have a big faith that we trust our entire eternity, forever and ever, and our salvation in the hands of Jesus, that he's strong enough to hold that. But we don't think we can trust him with our paycheck or our checkbook or our finances. That that's just a little too much. For you to handle God. I think I should keep my control over that. We can trust Him with, and and that ultimately brings the question then which one do we think is more valuable? What we hold temporarily that can be gone in an instant? Or the value of our soul that would cause the God of the universe to come and become a man and, and give His life to redeem us? What this means is I can trust God to forgive all my sins, I can trust Him to secure eternity in heaven. I don't know if I can trust Him with my calendar. I don't know if I can trust him enough with my checkbook or my debit card. I don't know if I can cling to his promises about all the times Jesus talked about those temporary, finite resources I have at my disposal. And if you don't, if you lack the confidence to trust God with everything in your life in ever increasing ways, you'll miss out on so many blessings that he wants to pour in your life. So generosity demonstrates my faith, the depth of my faith in God. Because when we give something away with a big heart, what are we saying? We're saying, this doesn't belong to me anyway. It's been given to me. I'm a steward. I'm a manager of it. And the God who provides for my needs, he's going to keep providing his provision. And the greatest thing I have is his presence and his forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. So everything else really doesn't matter in comparison. Generosity reveals my priorities. It demonstrates my faith in who my sustainer and provider is. The third thing, generosity attacks obsessive materialism. The more I give away, the more it attacks my desire for more stuff in my life. I mean, would you agree that we live in a culture of materialism? We do. I mean, think about it. We are on a property with storage units on the other side of those walls, right? It's like we live with a mindset. It's like, well, you know, if I can't fit all the stuff I have in my house, then I'm going to go find somebody else's property in a building they built, and I'm going to pay them every month to put stuff there so that if someday I need it, I can find it. Now, I'm kind of being humorous. There's nothing inherently evil about storage units. But think about it. We have had for years now, we've had documentary-style television shows that teach us as a society about our obsession with materialism, right? Stories about hoarding. People that never want to give away stuff, stories about pawn shops, people that kind of live there and bring stuff in and buy stuff and trade stuff and, 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 you know, stories about, you know, with storage units, people that can't pay their bills. So what do they do? They auction off all that material to the highest bidder. The antidote to materialism, the rehab for that addiction, it's generosity. When you're generous, you experience a spiritual victory in your heart, a liberty for materialism. Every time you're generous, your heart grows. It doesn't shrink, it grows. Every time you're generous, you break that grip of stuff in your life. And the reason is, what's materialism about? It's this again. It's what I get, not what I give. When we see our Savior, who is he? He's all about giving himself away. When when he talks about his Holy Spirit, what's he talking about? Giving himself away. All that he wants to give us, all he wants to bless us with, all he wants to do in our lives, all the freedom he offers. It's in my selfish nature to want to hold on to and grip God says, every time you share with a friend, you share with a family member, you share with a neighbor, you share with your church, anytime you're generous, you're breaking the grip of self-centeredness, and you're you're overcoming the addiction to materialism. In fact, if you're a parent, I would just encourage you, one of the most Christ-like lessons that you can share and lead your kids into, not just tell them about, but let them experience the beauty of, is is this idea, I I I I have to teach, I have to invite my kids to watch me give, invite my kids to watch me give. And let them play a part in it as well so that they can see. They don't need to see how kind you are or how generous you are. No, you want to instill in them the value of generosity. And, and, and you want them to, yes, have the good feeling that comes with it. But more than that, you want to tie it to the generous cross of Jesus, your faith. You want to help them understand the why behind we're generous. Well, I can give this because of what Jesus has given for me. I can give this. We can give this away. We can be generous with this because God has been so generous and kind to give us his grace and his mercy and his presence and he provides for our needs. Look for ways that you can you can connect and tie in the life of your kids your your uh, discipline and rhythm of generosity to the cross of Jesus. So generosity reveals my priorities, it demonstrates my faith, it attacks obsessive materialism, a fourth thing it blesses me abundantly. You don't have to wait till heaven to reap the rewards of living a generous life. And this is stated over and over again in the Bible. In the context of people in very uncertain times, God blesses those who are generous. Deuteronomy 15, going all the way back near the beginning, God tells the nation of Israel this, give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. Now there's a context here, do you see it? It's not up there, I read it ahead of time. Without a grudging heart, the heart behind the gift matters then because of this, the Lord your God will bless all your work and in everything you put your hand to. The question I'm ultimately led to ask is, how many of us would say, I want God to bless everything I touch? (laughs) All of us, right? This is a promise from God. He says, give generously, not begrudgingly, not angrily, not out of obligation. Be generous with your time. To those you don't have to be generous with. Be generous with your energy, to people you don't have to be generous with, with your skills or abilities. Begin to be more generous with with your material possessions or with your wealth and see how God blesses everything else you touch in ways you never could. And then the fifth thing generosity produces happiness. That's that good feeling. It's when we be like God, when our being aligns with God, it feels great. Because we're kind of connecting with God and that thumbprint of him on our lives. The Apostle Paul quotes Jesus in Acts chapter 20, and, and this is a verse that we know very well. We live it all the time, especially in the Christmas season, where Jesus says there is more happiness in giving than in receiving. When he said that, we didn't know what he ultimately meant was, I'm going to give my life, and there's going to be incredible joy when you understand I've given my life in your place. Wow. Wow. We know this is true. It feels good. To give. I mean, we, we, could, we can be asked that simple question, who's happier in life, the givers or the takers? We know it's the givers. Takers aren't happy. Takers are scared to death that what they have, someone else might take, that they took themselves. They're frightened. They're insecure. They're uptight. They're not happy people. They're not generous people. God says, I want to produce happiness and joy in your life because the happiest people on earth are the most generous. We forget this often, but we know it's true. Sowing seeds of generosity reaps happiness in our lives even if the things around us seem very, very uncertain. So think about the last year, year and a half of your life. Examine what you've been sowing. Have you been sowing more anxiety? Have you been sowing more fear? Have you been sowing desperate attempts to try to control outcomes, to control the decisions of other people so that it aligns with what you want? Are you sowing hostility? Are you sowing frustration? Are you sowing complaining and criticism? Are you sowing justification for your actions? If you do, you'll reap more of those things, which you really, really don't want to feed. You want to starve those things. Or are you in the the spirit of sowing faithfulness? Are you being faithful? Are you being kind? Are you being joyful? Are you being patient? Are you being a peacemaker where you are? Not a rabble rouser. Are you being forgiving? Are you being honorable? Are you being generous? And it's interesting, in every single one of those, do we say the word doing? No. Hopefully you've seen that theme over the last couple of months, right? We don't say doing forgiving or doing peacemaker or doing patience or doing joyful or doing honorable or doing kind or doing faithful or doing generous. We say being, state of being. It's who we see we are in light of the cross and the empty tomb. So the choice is yours. The choice is yours alone. But the power is not up to you. God is making his spirit available to all of us with the power that raises Christ from the dead to be who he's redeemed us to be. What's that look like in your life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the context of the lives of so many throughout scripture. There's a couple of places the time of David and Solomon where where those we read about were experiencing mountaintop moments. But God, in the vast majority of the circumstances in the Bible, it's people in very troubled moments, very uncertain times, modeling for us how we can trust you and how we can live the life you've called us to live and the, the blessing that comes with that. Lord, in every person's life here and everybody joining us online, I know that there's a There is something you're wanting to speak to us. Something you're wanting to say, a challenge you have for us. Make that crystal clear. And Lord, may, as we leave this place, may we have the courage to share it with somebody. What was the takeaway today? What were you saying to us? What were you challenging or convicting in our spirit? Speak loud, Holy Spirit. May you increase our faith to act on that word you've spoken. In your holy name we pray, amen.